welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm beyond excited again. We have the fabulous Jonathan Clements, who you must have heard a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I think it was a couple of months ago, he was on talking about his new book on Taiwan, but he's back to do more Taiwanese history. And if you haven't listened to the episode, go back and have a listen, because all of this will make a little bit more sense once we get going with all of this. Today, we're going to be talking about the Republic of Formosa, or what the modern Taiwanese still refer to as the War of Betrayal. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for having me back. And the book's out now, which is really exciting. And uh, you also rem- you also mentioned that the Taiwanese were having their elections, or was it the Chinese are having their elections? The Taiwanese are having their elections. And, and okay. uh, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, who's, who has been the president for eight years, her, her term's up, so... Um, I mean, at the time we we're recording this, we don't know what's happening. Um, but uh, by the time this goes out, then we should know whether the Guomindang or the DPP are the, are the new ruling force in Taiwan. And we should know whether or not the, the People's Republic of China has thrown missiles across the strait or sent an aircraft up and down outside the Pescadores just to cause trouble. Um, you know, elections in Taiwan are, are, are incredibly politicized. Um, issue. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose all elections are, but in Taiwan, it always kind of carries with it the kind of the elephant in the room, which is, is China going to invade this week? Yes. Well, exactly. So I think what we need to do is we need to get you back after this goes out, when the book is out, and then we can do an update and see what has changed or if there's anything interesting that we should talk about. Even though we talk about history, but all of this kind of just like interlinks anyway. And modern politics is thought important, especially as it's... Yeah, I, I, I do think that, I mean, historians uh, often feel irrelevant because they're talking about stuff in the past. But I think, you know, what historians really like to, to bring across to, to, the, to, the un- to the resisting reader, shall we say, is just how relevant the past can be uh, to the present. Exactly. So let's just kick off with this. Let's get let's get into the dark and the dirty. First important question of this is, well, how did the Chinese actually end up giving away Taiwan? Right. So in 1895, um, there was the Sino-Japanese War, 1894 to 1895. Um, and uh, J- Japan and China came to blows Largely in Korea, most wars between China and Japan end up being fought in Korean. The Koreans are not happy about it. Um, and last, so the war was largely fought over, over Korea. Um, and uh, it, they, they fought each other to a standstill. The Japanese were running very low on cash. The Chinese were running very low on everything. Um, and eventually in 1895, um, uh, Li Hongzhang, uh, the Chinese minister, came to um, Japan and they negotiated the Treaty of Shimonoseki. Uh, where the the Chinese agreed to cede um, Liaodong Peninsula, uh, the Japanese got to interfere in Korean politics, 
um oh, i've just realized something actually it relates to our last podcast it, um the uh, when, when it came to interfering in korean politics uh the the man in charge of, of dealing with all the korean um uh foreign relations no, was a man called charles Dejandre, no who, <laughs> yes um but that's another story um and uh and the treaty, and the, the, uh, during the, the negotiations over the Treaty of Shimonoseki, a Japanese ultra nationalist, or I suppose in Japan you'd call them ultra ultra nationalists, um, ran up to Lee Hong Jung in the street and shot him in the face. And the Japanese were so embarrassed that you know he'd been under their care negotiating a peace treaty, and some nutter had shot him. That they agreed to a lot of things that maybe they they wouldn't have otherwise agreed to. While the negotiations were going on, the Japanese Navy raced south um to seize taiwan uh you know taiwan is this big important strategic island at the end of the ryukyu island chain the japanese have coveted it for decades um and suddenly they realized that one of the things they could do was nab taiwan as well um as a little extra kind of bonus in the war so even as the treaty negotiations were going on uh there was this business going on in taiwan and eventually uh, largely, I think, to avoid larger war reparations, the Chinese agreed to give Taiwan to the Japanese. Um, and so they said, OK, yeah, fine, have it. We never wanted it anyway. You know, it's been an albatross around our neck for years. Uh, there were various points in, in, in uh, history when the Chinese had tried to sell Taiwan to the French, uh, to the English um they you know it was always it was always creating trouble for them a huge a third of the of the land area was actually not ruled by china at all it was these tribal lands that they couldn't control which creates all kind of trouble for them um and so the chinese said no fine have it you know we we, we wash our hands of it and this, this wasn't greeted by 100 percent of the chinese in that way there were protests in beijing that the government was giving away sovereign chinese land um, but as far as the diplomats at the top were concerned, you know, there was like, sod it. We just don't want we, we take Taiwan. If, if that's what it takes to keep you off the mainland, we'll hand Taiwan to you. But, so that's what they did. Um, and even as the Japanese were unloading their Marines at, at Geelong Harbor in the north of Taiwan, there was a movement to set up a Republic of Formosa. The governor of Taiwan, Tang Jing Song, announced that he was not going to hand over his island uh, to the Japanese, that he'd been betrayed by Beijing, and that out of loyalty to what Beijing should have done, he was proclaiming a Republic of Formosa, and Taiwan would be independent, and the Japanese would have to fight for it. Too bloody right. Absolutely. Obviously, that would have gone down well in Poland, Alina. That's, that's... But, but yeah, oh, no, now we're treading into very dangerous are we okay i didn't realize <laughs> no i'm kidding i'm kidding uh no we also have our own issues with like for example silesia wanting to go independent and various different regions but hey it's all politics but not important now we're talking about china stop bringing poland into this <laughs> okay so you've got your governor you've got the japanese you've got all of these players in motion what do the actual people think of this? Because nine times out of ten, they're always kept out of this narrative. Yeah, and, 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 and this is a really this is a really difficult question to answer because there are multiple factions within Taiwan. Um, you know, setting aside for a moment the uh, the indigenous people, which is you know at least a dozen different tribes uh, in um, the 
mainly now in the um, eastern part of the island. Um, you have the nativist Chinese, you have the people who've been there since the time of Coxing and the Pirate King, who came over from Fujian, who are Chinese settlers who, who lived and died on Taiwan uh, for, the, for the previous uh, 200 years. Um, and you have other interest groups as well. You have the Hakka, for example, who are these kind of wandering people um, who, who uh, you know, have their own language and, and, and their, their own traditions and their own culture, but form a huge component of the settlers in, in Taiwan. Entire villages uprooted from Fujian and from uh, Guangzhou, uh, Guangdong uh, moved over and resettled in Taiwan. And they regard Taiwan as their home, too. And they all have very. Um, but the thing is about the Hakka is they moved to Taiwan to get away from the Chinese. I mean, the Hakka are Chinese, but they don't like the Han Chinese. They certainly don't like the Qing dynasty who ruled China. So even though Taiwan has been part of China since the 1680s, even though it has a very large Chinese population, within Taiwan, there are the, these different interest groups. Now, Tang Jingsong, the governor, he is proclaiming uh, the Republic of Formosa out of loyalty to the idea of, um, of, of Taiwan being Chinese. Um, but in Taipei, for example, among the middle classes and the merchants uh, in, the, in the northernmost city in, in, in um, Taiwan, uh, the, the city that is now its capital, um, they regarded Taiwan as being overrun by out-of-work soldiers who were just robbing stuff. And as far as they were concerned, the Japanese couldn't come fast enough. They, were, they sent a delegation to welcome the Japanese when they arrived. They think, oh, thank God, put some law down on the streets of Taipei, protect our possessions from all of these marauding soldiers. Um, there's a huge community of soldiers. There's probably about 75,000 uh, Chinese soldiers uh, on Taiwan who just want to get paid. And whoever pays them, fine, we'll fight for you. Um, so that's an incredible unknown quantity to introduce into the mix. And out in the countryside, you've got the hackers who... Um, they have no interest in the wars that China is fighting. Um, they hate the Qing dynasty. They came to Taiwan to avoid them. They see no reason why they should let the Japanese take control. Um, so you've got all of these different interest groups um, uh, contending. Um, and really, the further south you go, the more there is a sense of patriotism to the idea of Taiwan being independent. You know, in the north, there are Chinese people who don't really care who's in charge as long as they can do business. And then there are Chinese people who still want to be part of China. Uh, but the further south you go, the more there is a sense of why are we letting China and Japan decide how uh, the fate of this island? You know, we've come to this island to avoid them both. I agree. I 100% agree. They should have independence. And well, they have independence now. But back at that stage, why didn't they deserve to be away from these two, would you call them superpowers? Could we class no, they were, them? They're pretty big powers at the time. I think officially a superpower doesn't come into being until the 20th century. But, you know, I, I mean, no one's going to... China's a pretty big and weighty thing to throw itself around the, uh, on the Pacific uh, Rim, and so is Japan. Well, yeah, so large sort of powers too, right? They've got the choice. And it's, yeah, I can see their point coming from, you know, we're not going to mention where I come from, but that region of mm -hmm. Eastern and Central Europe. Right. But, but we've talked about the people. What about coming back to the big players here? Who gets this all up and running? I mean, you know what it's right. like trying to get something up and running is not so easy. Yeah. And I think this is a fascinating thing about state formation. 
the idea i mean it's things start off as ideas and then someone has a meeting and someone writes a document and someone makes a flag and and at some point it becomes a nation um and that's all and a state formation is one of the things that's always fascinates me about history as well um so you know taiwan is a fantastic place for that because you've basically got a different kind of state forming in every chapter of a book of a, of a history book about taiwan um tang jing song said in his proclamation i have been asked to do this by the people of Taiwan, he uses the term Tai uh, Tai Min, the people of Taiwan. And what he meant was, is a delegation showed up at his office and said, "We are going to kill you if you don't do this." And Tang Jing Song was in this kind of really odd position, where if he resisted, the Japanese would kill him, and if he uh, didn't resist, then the, the, the Chinese would have a go. And the delegation of the so-called people of, of Taiwan. Uh, was led main was led by a hacker called Chiu Fengjia, and Chiu Fengjia is a is regarded as a hero in uh, in modern Taiwan. They've got a battleship named after him, or a cruiser at least. Um, uh, you know, he he was a real loyalist um, to the idea of Taiwan as an independent state. He was one of these hacker people who didn't want to be part of, of the Chinese sphere. Um, Tang Jing Song kind of made Chiu Feng Jia his vice president in an attempt to kind of have him on the inside pissing out because otherwise Chiu Feng Jia would have just you know run off and set up his own republic and then there'd be two of them to deal with um in his dealings with the foreign powers Tang Jing Song describes himself as the president of the republic of Formosa in his dealings with Beijing he continued to refer to himself as the acting governor of Taiwan and I think if you kind of deep, dig deep, deep down into the rhetoric of all this, you can see Beijing, and this is sheer conjecture, I can't prove this, but you can see Beijing saying, okay, Japan, we surrender Taiwan to you. Be a shame if something happened to it. Be a shame if they proclaimed independence or something, wouldn't it? Because there's this kind of wink from Beijing that Tang Jing Song sets up this so-called republic he proclaims the year name is now Yongqing, which means eternal Qing, which suggests continued loyalty to China. He has a flag which is a tiger, which is the counterpart of the dragon on the Chinese flag. There are all these kind of hints that he's sending that this is some kind of dog whistle. It's not really a, 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 a real um, republic, as it were. Um, so he, he's, he's making all of these uh proclamations and he's being very uh performative about it uh one of my favorite bits is he summons consuls from norway and france and uh sweden uh germany britain he, he summons all the consuls that he can get for a meeting at his office and when they leave he says oh yeah we've been talking about foreign intervention actually yeah that's what we've been discussing not, none of this gets back in consular reports. He just called them for a meeting, had a cup of tea, sent them out. But he wants it to look as if the foreign powers are interested. Um, meanwhile, he's evacuating his mother. He goes, Mum, get the hell out of town. It's all going to kick off here. He sends his mother to the docks to get on a ship. Her baggage train is attacked by hungry soldiers. And he has to send in his own Marines to shoot their way through to the harbour so his mother can get out on a ship. So everything is kind of really falling apart He's bragging to the world. He's got 150,000 soldiers. He's actually got 75,000, and a lot of them want to get paid before they do anything. So, uh, yes, Tang Jing Song is proclaiming this republic, but there are all sorts of uh, 
of issues behind the scenes that, that make it clear how shaky it is. We have an eyewitness report of the first parade of the Republican officials, and it was pissing with rain and everyone was miserable and, the, you know, the band didn't want to play their song. And, and, you know, it's got none of the Hollywood excitement. It's got none of the French revolutionary, you know, girl with her baps out standing on a load of bodies waving a flag stuff. None of that seems to happen with the Republic of Formosa. Um, and, and so it, it seemed to get off to quite a dodgy start. Kind of sounds like it's completely and utterly falling apart. I mean, we, we kind of know the end result, but in theory right now, that's what it sounds like. Is, it, is this actually a serious political entity or is this just a, a show? Well, there are mixed feelings about this. Um, James Davison, who was reporting on it for the foreign press, began by saying, oh, well, if the Chinese are actually creating a republic, this is going to be a game changer. Uh, very very soon afterwards, you went, or oh, maybe it's just a shit show. I, it, it's really not looking very good. Um, modern historians uh, like Harry Lamley, uh, like Nicky Olsford, are very happy to uh, describe it as a sham, as a calculated sham, just to hold people off, just to try and you know find some way um, to uh, to keep the Japanese at arm's length for as long as possible. Um, there's a very telling strategic point, which uh, I think explain, which says it all for me, which is that if you lose the pescadors, which are these islands in between Fujian and Taiwan, it's the staging post for all invasions of, uh, of Taiwan that have ever been made. If you lose the pescadors, you cannot hold Taiwan because you can't be resupplied from the mainland. So any assistance that you have can't, has to come in from Hawaii. It's not going to happen. Um, the pescadors had already gone been occupied by the Japanese when Tang Jing Song made his proposal. So it seems very unlikely that it was going to get anywhere. Li Hongzhang in China called it strange words, which, depending on how you translate the Chinese, is either him saying this whole thing is a joke or it's him saying, what an odd thing to say, wink, wink. Um, so I can't really tell from, from Li Hongzhang's words whether or not Beijing also thought of it as a stupid sham. But it didn't need, uh, I think in Tang Jingsong's eyes, at least, at least, it didn't need to be a political entity. It needed to be a dog whistle. It needed to attract the attention of foreign powers. Now, the official position by foreign powers was that the Treaty of Shimonoseki had been signed and the Treaty of Shimonoseki had granted Taiwan to the Japanese. So this was a treaty between two powers. Everyone else had to stay out of it. Um, but Tang Jing Song's policy was that treaty is invalid. We're an independent country. We're being invaded. We have the right to self-determination. The people of Taiwan have spoken, you know, cue American flags waving and everyone saying, that, you know, people, will, will no one help us? Will no one come to our aid? And while that might seem incredibly naive um, with our 21st century eyes, let's not forget what happened to the Liaodong Peninsula. After the Treaty of Shimonoseki was signed, there was a triple intervention. Three European countries showed up and said, Japan, you're not having that. Go home. And I think Tang Jingsong was hoping that something similar would happen. The British or the French would show up and, and make Taiwan a protectorate and keep the Japanese out. Um, and, and in order to do that, he just had to keep up this incredible performance that the people of Taiwan have spoken. We've got a flag. We've got a president. We, we you know, we're, we're printing our own money. We're, we're, we're you know, we, we've got an army and, you know, and we're going to hold them off. Um, and, and so the question then becomes in, in diplomatic terms, 
when do you believe someone when they say that you know do you believe the republic of donbass when it says it's republic it's independent do you believe the republic of crimea do you believe you know the people's republic of finland uh, and this is the case here as well when do we say okay it sounds like the people of Taiwan have spoken. It sounds like they do have a right of self-determination. And that's what the next kind of six months in, in uh, over the, the war, the war of betrayal, as it's known, um, that's what the next six months is about, the extent to which the Japanese are occupying land that is rightfully theirs or invading a newly formed republic. First of all, this sounds unbelievably chaotic, unbelievably fake, in my opinion. What is the point of them even bothering to create an independent nation of Taiwan? It is the idea of attracting these these foreign powers. It, it, it's that, you know, if, if the Russians can show up and shoo the Japanese out of Liaodong, why can't they show up and shoo the Japanese out of Taiwan as well? Um, what right do the Japanese to have to, to be predatory like this? And when the Japanese would say, well, we have the same right as all the other European powers who are doing this all over Asia. Um, uh, Tang Jing Song himself and uh, his general uh, Liu Yongfu were both veterans of the Sino-French War, uh, which was mainly fought in Vietnam, but also in Taiwan. Um, and so, you know, they were very hopeful, particularly about the French. Tang Jing Song had met this French sea captain who had said to him, oh, yeah, if you put on a big enough show, we'll, we'll come and help. Uh, and it seemed like an awfully large if you know, the words of some French sailor are not enough to establish a republic. In my eyes, uh, I mean, I've never been put in that position myself. Um, so, you know, he was hoping for something like the triple intervention, uh, and, and it never came. But after he'd said, OK, this is a republic, we're, we're doing this. Down in the south, you've got the hackers and you've got the, the nativist Chinese who are saying, OK, well, we're ready to fight then. Down in the south, you have Liu, uh, Liu um, Yongfu, the former leader of the Black Flag Army who fought in, in Vietnam. And he's there saying, OK, well, if, if we've got a republic, I'm the general and I will fight to protect this republic. Let's start fortifying Kaohsiung. Let's start fortifying Tainan. Let's start fortifying Zhanghua. Let's get ready for the Japanese. And of course, up in Taipei, which is where the Japanese are going to come first, there is, as you say, absolute chaos. The, most of the Chinese soldiers uh, are, are revolting. They're, they're stealing stuff. They are flogging. They, they are ransacking the governor's residence and then selling stuff on the street outside, which is scattered with coins because people can't carry all the coins that they're carrying. There's this very evocative piece by James Davidson. Uh, he was hoping to cover the Japanese arrival in Jilong, the, the port of, uh, of Taiwan, but he figured it was time for him to get out if he possibly could. Uh, so he was on the last train out of Jilong, uh, which which drove through a crowd of people on its way out of the station. There's people kind of hanging onto it, as you know, people climbing on the roofs and and dangling off the train, and it actually plows through the people on the tracks to to get out before the Japanese do. So in the north, you have what he actually describes as perfect panic. The Japanese, when they actually end up in Taiwan, they must face some sort of kind of resistance because we've been talking about the creation of the nation. What is happening to the Japanese at this point? Well, um, they were, I think, expecting quite an easy ride when they arrived. They're expecting to be welcomed. And of course, the further south they went, the greater the resistance was. Um, now, 
the big problem for them was firstly Shinju, which today it's basically if, if Taipei is London and Shinju is Slough, it's really not that far from it. And it's a kind of satellite community. Um, but it's a real stronghold of hacker people. So there was some heavy fighting in Shinju and and um James Davidson's reports of the war for the foreign press, he he's his tone changes after Shinju. Up to Shinju, he talks about the Taiwanese resistance. After Shinju, he talks about Taiwanese rebels. So as far as he's concerned, once Taipei falls to the Japanese, you know, the 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 the, the locals are just being difficult. Um one of the fascinating things about this is the information that you can uncover from reportage, um, which would once have been very hard to find. Um, now, for example, this man, Chiu Fengjia, who I mentioned, uh, is a leader of the hackers. He's got a bunch of guerrillas and he's fighting the Japanese as they go south. That's what all the history books say. But in the last few years, the last decade, maybe, it's become possible for you and me to read the newspapers from that time without leaving our homes. And that's the amazing thing. If I want to read the North China Herald now, um, I can pay Brill online 35 euros or whatever it is, and I can spend a day just reading the newspapers of the day. Um, and when you read the North China Herald, they talk about Chiu Fengjia as the king of Taiwan. They call him the king of Taiwan. Wow. Um, and, and, they, and, and it turns out that he was born in the same zodiacal year, the, you know, the Chinese zodiacal year that changes every 60 years, as Kok Singer, the pirate king of Taiwan. And they're calling him the prodigy of Dong Ning. And they're acting like he's the reincarnation of, of, uh, of Kok Singer. Um, and there's this real kind of fervor building up around Chiu Fengjia. Um, so uh, so he's leading some quite fierce resistance against the Japanese. And, and the Japanese are getting really pissed off with it because uh, the roads in Taiwan are so terrible that they have to walk their own horses through it and their gun carriages won't go through the muddy roads and they're all getting dysentery um, and the weather's terrible uh, and this is Taiwan. So in the summer, it's just hot and horrible, but in the winter, it's going to get cold as well. And um meanwhile every time they walk into a chinese village everyone comes out waving white flags and smiling and the moment they leave they all pick up guns again and chase after them and and the japanese are, um their army is not used to the dishonesty of warfare they're not you know they think that you should stand in a line and fight each other like men and whoever's left alive at the end is is, is the winner and and the the there's a very asymmetric warfare going on in Taiwan and the Chinese, the, the, the Taiwanese, the hackers, they're, they're, they're pulling every possible trick that they can. Uh, and, and, and that's really annoying the Japanese uh, at this point. So the Japanese army at this mm -hmm. point is being led by a Japanese prince. Is this kind of some sort of reflection to how important this mission is? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, because um, the Imperial Japanese Army tended to create nobility anyway. You know, if you serve, I mean, you still get someone like Admiral Togo, for example. He's a, he's a duke or, or, or a count or something by the time he dies. So people get promoted in the ranks and they also get promoted in the Japanese nobility. And the Japanese nobility was a thing until 1945. Um, in the case of the, the army that invaded uh, Taiwan, it was led by a prince. It was led by Prince Kitashirakawa, um, who, if anything, 
was a sign that the Japanese really didn't take this very seriously at all. Um, because the thing that I always remember about Kita Shirakawa is that he went into the army in order to kind of paper over the cracks of a scandal from his youth. Are you surprised? <laughs> Isn't that what it's... always happens? Well, I don't know. If, I don't know if this particular scandal is ever going to happen to you or me. Uh, you know, this isn't kiddie fiddling or, or uh, you know, or, or cooking the books or anything. This is um, not that either of us have done that. I'm sure, but um, <laughs> but I've just realised the rabbit hole we're going down there. Um, but in the case of Prince Kitashirakawa, in the Meiji Restoration, um, so in, in basically the Japanese Civil War that put the Meiji Emperor on the throne, um, 1867, 1868, there was a rival candidate for emperor. Um, and that was the man that we now call Prince Kitashirakawa. So in his younger days, he was actually set up as this guy is going to be the emperor and the shogun's forces were backing him. And so they were the losers in the civil war. And he was regarded as a puppet of the enemy forces. And so he was kind of, uh, they gave him a new name and they sent him off to kind of keep him busy. And he went off and, you know, joined the army. So it may have been like, let's send, let's send Prince Shirakawa and hope he gets killed. Um, oh, which, that's so mean. Well, I don't know. I've never met Prince Shirakawa, Kita Shirakawa. I don't know what he was like. He might have been an asshole, for all I know. I do know that he was wounded uh, in, in the advanced south and eventually died of disease uh, on the outskirts of Tainan. So if it was a secret scheme to deal with unwanted members of the imperial family, it worked. Well, he could have uh, still challenged the throne at the end of the day, couldn't he? Yeah, I mean, that's the amazing thing, is that I, I don't see any record of him ever having done that. Uh, mm. So he he must have been well and truly hobbled by whatever happened in the in the, um, in the the Civil War. Or the evidence was very clear to the Meiji Emperor that uh, the Prince Kitashirakar was never an active player, that he was just some kind of figurehead for a movement that he had nothing to do with. Very interesting because I actually I, I didn't I, I did a bit of the major restoration at university, and I didn't realise there was a candidate that basically rivaled the Meiji Emperor. So that's amazing information to be able to find yeah, out. I, I mean, well, you know, I also studied the Meiji restoration uh, at university, and it was never mentioned to me either. Well, there it's you one go. of those. Um, it, it's a very minor incident, um, and it was it was one of those things, a bit like Chu Fengjia being the king of of central Taiwan, which was really important at the time but was completely overwritten by later events um and so um the the battle of ueno uh which was the what the big fight in the middle of tokyo in what is now ueno park uh where, where saigo takamori you know slew so many people that the um the shinobazu pond turned red with blood um that was over getting access to to the the man in the in the temple who was prince kitashirakawa the man who would later be known as prince kitashirakawa so the the idea that i think his reign title would have been korbu i think so the idea that there was this korbu emperor was part of the proclamations that were made uh, by the shogunal forces as they retreated north um in in japan but it was over very very quickly and so i think Posterity remembers the Japanese Civil War, uh, you know, the, the, the Meiji Restoration, the Boshin War, as it's known, as a conflict between the forces of the Shogun and the forces of the Emperor. And I think it was very important for the Imperial forces to forget to mention that there was more than one Imperial possibility. However much I want to stick to Japanese history, I mean, 
we're kind of yeah we're in, in a mixture this is here. japanese history the moment the japanese slosh ashore at geelong this is japanese history exactly however much i want to go back to the major restoration because that is an absolutely fascinating subject and oh we can come back and do that another day if you like oh my god yes please leslie downer she wrote a really good book so the reason i got so into fiction is because of leslie downer and she wrote a fabulous book on um the last uh the last concubine i think i think that's the name of the book and it was just so beautifully written about japan during the major restoration period that it got me so much more i think i must have been about 22 23 when i read the book and she's just oh, just the visuals and anyway right enough, all, enough right, well, it's all right no one's listening let me pitch it to you now state formation being the thing that i love we can talk about the republic of Azor on another broadcast which is you know which is basically this story but in hokkaido so and it's the same deal let's do it let's okay. because yeah any anyway, oh, no 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 stop it alina get back focused <laughs> on taiwan right okay so we have the prince. He's pretty much dead, isn't he, uh, at this point? So who is leading the resistance? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. At this stage. Well, Chilfanjar is supposed to be leading the resistance, but by August, he's left the country. Um, And the way that the historical record frames this is very different. When Tang Jing Song leaves the country, it's framed as a tragic comedy. His soldier bursts into the room and says, uh, oh my God, you know, the, the Japanese are on the outskirts. And Tang Jing Song has this briefcase and he goes, this has got all the military dispatches in it. You have it. And bolts from the room, dresses up as a woman, goes onto a, uh, gets through the harbour, uh, gets onto a German ship I can't remember if it was the Arthur or the Martha now. It's one of these two German ships that had rhyming names. And the German ship takes him out of the harbour and his own gun emplacements on the hills above uh, the port start firing on his ship. And the Germans are firing back at their own, at the Republican forces, at Tang Jing Song's own people. And it's this huge kind of comedy about this this official kind of just bricking it. When Chiu Feng Jia leaves, it's the same story. He, you know, He's losing. He knows he's going to lose, and he's giving up. But when Chul Fengjia does it, the way that it's described is very much of a patriot who's going to come back to fight another day. It's a man who is prevented by his own men from killing himself because they think he's better. He's better use alive. It's a man who leaves the country, goes to the mainland, um, has a son called um, oh, what's his son's name? Uh, his, his son's name meant uh, it was Nientai, remembering Taiwan. His son's name was remembering Taiwan, and he wrote these poems about how how he'd let the people of Taiwan down, and he was going to. And in fact, Chiu Fengjia would end his days um, shortly before he died, when the Republic of China was founded on the mainland. They made him a delegate on behalf of Taiwan, in the expectation that one day Taiwan would be Chinese again. Uh, so, he, so there's this very romantic 
admiring description of Chiu Feng Jia, even though he ran for it as well, uh, which I find very interesting because I'm all in favour of running away rather than getting killed. But these two men both seem to run away in very different manners. And what that leaves us down in the south is uh, Liu Yongfu, uh, who is a hacker as well. He's the leader of the Black Flag Army. Um, there's a very negative portrayal of him, particularly by French historians, because of what he did to the French. Um, but he, so they, they talk about him as a mercenary. And I think there's a difference between being a mercenary and being a guy who just wants his men to get paid, which is not necessarily the same thing. And of course, financial logistics in a new republic are an incredibly difficult thing to to pass um so liu yongfu is supposed to be the leader down in the south he's fortifying gaoxiong he's fortifying tainan he's getting ready uh to to fight the japanese and the japanese are a little bit worried that given more time to entrench and given the fact that they are experienced soldiers from the fighting in vietnam that liu uh, yongfu is going to give them a, a bigger run for their money Coming back to the Japanese, of course, because that's I'm always going to roll that line. Coming back to the Japanese. You can talk uh, about Japanese as much as you like. <laughs> you got to come back on so we can do more of this. Anyway, anyway, before I start digressing onto something else, you mentioned this previously that the Japanese are just not used to fighting a, can we call it a gentleman's war? Is that a. We... No, no, they are used to fighting in general. I think that's the thing. They've, they've been trained in very um, uh, very gentlemanly conduct. I mean, remember, yes. the Russo-Japanese War, World War Zero, as I, as I think is a great name for it, in which so many of the elements of modern warfare were defined, trench warfare, mines, you know, um, uh, star shell, barbed wire, um, uh, you know, the, the industrialization of, of, of killing... That's still five years in the future, or ten years in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so you know the, the Japanese have learned how to fight uh, from German military advisors mainly, um, and uh, they still have, I think, a rather theoretical notion of, of how to conduct themselves. Um, they've sat across a war gaming table and moved little toy horses around and gone, okay, so we do that, but we just do it in real life, and then. When they're actually on a, a winding road that's full of mud with people with snipers shooting at them from the from the the, the, the villages and they go into the villages and there's a guy there with a hot dog stand you know or, or the chinese equivalent they don't understand how that works it, it, it's, it's unclear to them um so i think they were uh quite quite baffled by this experience um and so that made it very difficult for them they were much better uh, ironically, Liu Yongfu turns up to fight real battles with soldiers in, in a line and, and, and artillery and stuff. And the Japanese are ready for that. They understand how it works. So at the Battle of Zhanghua, for example, um, they were in a much better position. Uh, and in fact, um, there, there, was, there were some very lucky shots on both sides of, on, on Zhanghua. Um, uh, the, the thing that was really ruining things for the Japanese was they arrived with, I think, 12,000 men. They'd lost half their men by Zhanghua. Um, to disease, malaria and dysentery. So the Japanese are losing quite badly at this point. We could we could say that. Yeah. And the Chinese, they seem to be holding their own. Where are they funding all of this? Where are they finding the money to be able to keep the stronghold? Well, this is another a crucial issue. Um, they do have some cash floating around. Um, 
but it's dwindling very fast and it's not clear how you can spend it. I mean, if you've got Chinese money, but you're in Taiwan and Taiwan's not part of China anymore, that's not very clear, is it? Um, uh, Liu Yongfu is very keen. Uh, he, he refuses to be the president of, uh, I mean, he's often re he's often referred to as the president of um, the Republic of Formosa after Tang Jingsong, but he actually refuses that role. He says, look, I'm, I'm the general, I will fight for you. I'll get involved in politics to the extent that we can generate the finances for me to do so. Um, and people have called that a mercenary attitude. And I don't think it is. I think it's actually just realist. You know, we need cash to pay for this. They issued government bonds in the name of the Republic of Formosa. Um, but the real thing that really uh, raised cash for them was an idea of a, of a man called McCallum, um, a, a British customs officer in uh in, in uh, I think in, in Tainan or Kaohsiung. Basically, he was a third-rate tide waiter, which meant that he was a kind of a, a customs inspector um, who was so far down the ranks that when the British evacuated, they didn't have space for him on the ship. And so he kind of stuck, he kind of left behind. And he went to Liu Yongfu and he said, the way to really fund a new nation is stamps. Sorry, did you just say stamps? I said stamp. For those of you who can't, <laughs> I can see Alina on Zoom, and the look on her face is like I've just I've just farted loudly. <laughs> but yes, stamps. He says, all over the world, people are collecting these things called stamps, and their people are mad for it. And you've got a new country, and if you can run off some stamps, we can sell them by the sheet, and people will invest in them. And so Liu Yongfu proclaims, okay. Every bit of communication, every bit of mail, every parcel that goes out of Taiwan has to carry a stamp on it. And they make this stamp. It's, it's basically a chop, like a, a Chinese you know, signature stamp with a tiger on it. Very, very uh, rough and ready. Um, and, and you could print it by hand, basically. Um, but they, they charge, I think, you know, money then about $1.50 for them. And that, and that has to go on every piece of mail that goes out of Taiwan. Um, and... Uh, this is a fascinating area because stamp collecting was just becoming a thing uh, in 1895. And it seems that McCallum had really hit on to this very sneaky idea that however long the Republic of Formosa lasted, the first stamps issued there would be a collector's item. If it fell the following day, they'd be super collectible. But if it became the beginnings of a new China, they would still be the first stamps issued by it. So this would be a lot of cash. And so the money that the stamps issued by Liu Yongfu brought in was vastly disproportionate to the amount of mail going into and out of Taiwan. And so it would seem that the foreign community, I'm blaming white people here, had a number of very canny investors who were buying Taiwanese stamps by the sheet as investments. Um, and so... Uh, that was the thing that really helped buoy uh, the Republic up. So the next question is, did Tainan put up a fight at all? Right, so Liu Yongfu is fortifying the south, he's fortifying Tainan, the, 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 which is, used to be the capital of, of Taiwan uh, in the old days, and he's fortifying Kaohsiung as well, ready for a big fight. But when the Japanese reach Tainan, when they reach the last kind of big city before Kaohsiung, um, a delegation comes out of the city and just surrenders. 
um, the foreign merchants in the city and the Chinese merchants in the city are accepting the writing on the wall. They're accepting that the hackers might be out in the hinterland taking pot shots at the Japanese and indeed still would be for many years to come. But the reality of it was that the Japanese were standing in the in, in the big city uh, and were in charge and that they had the Pescadores Islands and that with the death of Prince Kitashirakawa, uh, a, a Japanese um, uh, admiral was now in charge and the Japanese Navy was showing up in the harbour. And it's like, okay, well, the Japanese Navy's here. The Japanese Army's here. We kind of don't want to fight anyway. The president ran from the country disguised as a woman. Our, you know, the king of Taiwan, Chou Fengjia, has done a runner. Maybe we should just give up. And that's the good thing. That's a good way to, to deal with this. And so by the time the Japanese reached um, Tainan, um, I don't know if you know, but Tai Taipei is North Tai, Tai Jong is Middle Tai, Tainan is South Tai, and those are the three big uh, um, cities in, in old Taiwan. And by the, so by the time they reached the southern city, um, the the large proportion of the general public had given up on the idea of resisting. And so, although the Japanese had been, you know, more than decimated by uh, by disease, it was quite clear that more were coming. With the loss of the harbour at Tainan, they could unload as many soldiers as they wanted from new ships. Um, where were they going to go? The, the, the last place is that they could retreat to Kaohsiung, um, but after Kaohsiung, basically they were going to have to run up into the mountains into tribal lands, uh, which which the Chinese didn't control anyway. So they basically gave up at that point. And so it was officially proclaimed that the Republic of Formosa, so-called, had lasted for 151 days. In Tainan, there is a temple to Koxinga, the pirate king of Taiwan, uh, whose mother was Japanese. And so the first thing that uh, Admiral Kabayama did when he arrived was to go in a procession to the temple uh, of Koxinga and give thanks and notify the demigod himself that Taiwan had been restored to Japanese control. So after... 200 years of calling him a pirate the moment the japanese got to tainan they said oh we just remembered your mum's japanese so basically when you took this island for china you were kind of taking it for japan and with that in mind you're now a hero and we're going to make you a god again i don't still understand that sort of line of thinking at all <laughs> like at all but at this stage the japanese you said had literally lost half of their men half of their fighting force at the end of the day, was this all worth it for them? At the at the very beginning, it wasn't. At the very beginning, they felt that they had been sold a real pup. Um, they'd lost a lot of men for no reason. They'd gained an island uh, that at first appeared to be absolutely useless to them. Um, however, uh, over the years, Taiwan became really the jewel in the Japanese crown. It was an incredibly valuable asset to them. It, it was very it completely changed japan uh, for all sorts of reasons the, the 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 chinese food they have in in japan is really based on what the taiwanese uh brought there as as subjects of the empire taiwan had coal it had camphor it had um uh it had gold it had pineapples it had sugarcane the japanese diet completely changed because suddenly sugar was a cheap commodity not an expensive one um they completely revitalized uh, 
agriculture in Taiwan. I mean, it's a whole other story, but they uh, they created thousands of acres of rice fields. Uh, I mean, it kind of became the, the, the rice basket of, of Japan in a way, because they, they grew whole rye rice all over Taiwan and, and, and uh, made a, a huge uh, difference to their food supply. Um, and so Taiwan became a much valued part of the Japanese empire and an object lesson in how to run a newly colonized. Basically, every time the Japanese invaded somewhere after that, they tried to follow their Taiwan model. Um, so uh, I think over time, they, they went from uh, at one point saying, we've been bankrupted by this war. We've got this shitty island we don't want. Why don't we flog it to the French and be done with it? Over time, they came to very much enjoy having that island uh, unsurprisingly the 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 indigenous people didn't like the japanese any more than they liked the chinese and so that third of the island that stripped down the edge that was uh indigenous territory remained troublesome to the japanese just as, as it had been um to the chinese um but uh the thing about japanese taiwan that i find very interesting is how little it's discussed um because post-colonially speaking the idea of taiwan being a colony of japan as it was for 50 years you know it, it only reverted in 45 1945 um is a bit of an embarrassment to the japanese some of them do talk about it you can buy a, you know a tour guide to uh to taiwan that only talks about japanese colonial era buildings and history and so on um but it's also an embarrassment for the chinese they don't like the idea of this province of, of China being part of Japan for 50 years. And so um, the, the, the People's Republic don't like to talk about it. The Republic of China, so the, the government of Taiwan today, had a concerted effort throughout the latter half of the 20th century to delete everything that was Japanese in their culture. You weren't allowed to speak the language. You weren't allowed to talk about the history. You weren't allowed to have statues of the people or anything. And so um, I've written quite a few book reviews about Taiwanese history. And there was one I wrote about a, a history of Meiji, uh, Meiji Taiwan, about the Japanese figures who made such a huge difference to Taiwan as a Japanese colony. And uniquely among those reviews, I got no likes at all on Facebook. Uh, um, you know, I, I post, what? I, I post. I was posting them on a on a Taiwanese on, on a group of people who talk about Taiwanese history. And whenever I post one of my reviews, you know, someone would say, "Oh, that's nice," and someone would say, "Well, you're an idiot," and someone would press like. When I posted a review of a book about Meiji uh, Meiji Taiwan, no one said a word, and I found that really interesting. That if you're a Taiwanese historian and the Japanese era comes up, you sort of, oh, well, I mean, I'll get to it eventually, but I don't really want to face it now. That's really interesting. God, that 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 reverberates. Rever my God, I can't even use the, use the word correctly. That, that kind of let's say it a different way. That kind of mirrors across a lot of issues, even now, a lot of issues throughout the world. And you can say, for example, China, Japan, Russia. You know this this sort of ideology, especially through Eastern and Central Europe. Mm. Oh, of course, because I'm. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Don't get me started. You know, as someone who lives in Finland and who writes about Finnish history, the Russian era is almost completely erased. Yeah, don't talk about uh, the Russians. Uh, no, we, I, it, so you know, I write a biography of of Carl Gustav Mannerheim, who was the president of Finland, 
And I mentioned that he served for 30 years in the Russian cavalry. <gasps> and How dare you? Finns, Finns blink at me in surprise. And I'm like, surely you knew this. Surely this must have come up at some point. And they're like, well, I suppose he must have been if he was an officer when the revolution started. But we never really thought about it. And and I'm very surprised at how often that still comes up. So there are moments in any national history that you don't like to talk about. I mean, uh, for the British, the one that fascinates me is the Glorious Revolution. Is the idea that the Dutch show up and take over the whole country and no one talks about it. Um, so, you know, every country's got these little blind spots. And historically speaking, they tend to be the things that the next generation of historians go for because no one's talking about them. Oh, yes. Let's not continue this because we could rant about this forever. <laughs> so one of the last questions is a little bit of a, I don't know, do I say hypothetical? It's not a hypothetical. But if we accept that the public of Formosa was an actual real thing, which I think it was from what I've learned from you. Yeah, that's not what you said at the beginning. You said it was a complete sham. I did say it was a complete sham, but I've kind of, felt for the people fighting for the real thing for independence and I've kind of warmed up to that idea does this end up having historical repercussions I'm assuming especially now it has severe repercussions uh yes uh yes it does because the the official narrative um is that Taiwan was this island that had some people living on it and one day Coxinger shows up on the run from the Qing dynasty and he takes over the island. He throws out the Dutch uh, and he takes over the island. And in order to oust Coxinger, the Qing dynasty invades Taiwan and takes it over. The Qing dynasty in, 16, in the 1680s then says, do we really want this island? I mean, it's just a ball of mud. And that's a quote from the Kangxi emperor. It's just a ball of mud. Um, and one of his admirals, Xu Lang, says, no, 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 there's lots of stuff going on in Taiwan. And also, strategically, if we don't hang on to it, some other country is going to come along and nick it. Um, and then they'll have an island off our coast that's going to cause us trouble. We need to hang on to it. So they, the Chinese reluctantly hang on to this island, do some stuff with it over the years. They have good governors. They have bad governors. They have good times. They have bad times. It's notoriously fractious, and it costs the Chinese a lot of money. And then in 1895, they hand it over to the Japanese. So we have this, this little flash, this little historical moment that we've just discussed, 151 days of fighting, and then it's a Japanese colony for 50 years. In 1945, uh, Taiwan is taken away from the Japanese by the Allied powers, and it's handed back. To who? Who gets Taiwan back when it's taken away from the Japanese? I know. China is the decision made in Cairo. Now, when Roosevelt uh, meets with Churchill and Chiang Kai-shek, they talk about what's going to happen uh, at the end of the war. And uh, Roosevelt is very much swayed by uh, one of the former presidents of uh, the Republic of China, a man called uh, Liu Sen, who fought uh, during the resistance against the Japanese in 1895. And he says, what you've got to do is that when you defeat the Japanese, you've got to give Taiwan back to China because the Republic of China is the rightful owner of Taiwan. But the Republic of China wasn't founded until 1911, 1912. So it didn't exist at the time. Um, so if we're going to call the Republic of China the inheritors of the Qing dynasty, that's fine. That works in, in international law. 
But what if we but now? So and and so at the beginning of this conversation, you would have been fine with that. But now you're telling me you feel for these people. You feel for these people who put up that fight. And if you feel for them and if you believe that republic existed, if only for a week, then the people that the Japanese took the republic from that took Taiwan from were the Republic of Formosa. And that means it should be handed back to the people of Taiwan. Oh, yes. 100%. So, so, so this is the situation. This is why it becomes such a heavily uh, politicized issue. There is a political party in Taiwan that actually runs on this platform that the Republic of Formosa was a thing and therefore the Chinese have no right to Taiwan. Um, so this is why Tang Jing Song's dog whistle uh, um, deception becomes such a hot political potato. And it's not the only one either. I mean, last time I was here, we talked about um, Charles Legendre negotiating with Tokitok um, about uh, foreign sailors. And and what I never mentioned at the time was you can look upon this in two ways. You can look upon it as this American wide boy showing up in South China and doing a deal with a local heavy not to kill foreign sailors. Or you can say this is an American official with consular authority arriving in a confederacy of First Nations people, of indigenous people, this this Sekalu of, of 18 tribes, and making a political deal with them. And if that's true, then that part of Taiwan wasn't ruled by China. And there is a and so how could that be handed to the Japanese if the Chinese didn't own it either? That's a very interesting point of view. Yeah, I mean, it's all smoke and mirrors. Yes. Um, you know, you know, at a big picture level, um, we end up with the ultimate um, uh, result of the Cairo Declaration, which is actually the Shanghai Declaration, which is uh, the uh, the United States of America um, and the People's Republic of China saying, "We announce there is only one China. Taiwan is part of China." But what we're not going to do is talk about what that might mean, you know, politically uh, moving on. So because, you know, of course, this is a, 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 another story entirely. But in 1945, you have these two authorities dueling for control of China. You have the People's Republic, the Communists. Uh, you have the, the Republic of China, um, which is the, the Guomindang. And so when Mao proclaims the People's Republic in, in, in 49 and says, OK, all of China belongs to us. In Taiwan, you have the Republic of China going, well, this bit doesn't. And so the People's Republic treats Taiwan like it's a rogue province. Taiwan acts for decades like it's the rightful government of all of China. And that any day soon, they're going to come back over the strait and take China back, which is also a fascinating you know, series of smoke and mirrors. Um, and so that's the position that we find ourselves in today taiwan and uh the people's republic of china uh are still playing out the 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 wording of the shanghai declaration which is based on cairo which you know is is a dismissal of the republic of formosa before we end you've done this again you did this last time you've held off on finishing a question <laughs> I think this is going to become a thing now. Just hold off on, on finishing a question and then we can answer it at the end. I like this. You mentioned about the stamps that if they were successful, the stamps would be brand new created to a nation. If they failed, it would be stamps that were valuable because 
uh, they didn't and it became um, gosh my brain has kind of died a little bit here and it's therefore still a kind of an original thing because they would be one of a kind right what actually happens with these stamps do they become worth anything well um there's a whole book written about these stamps uh, obviously you know there's, there's always some nutter uh, who'll do that um and uh very interestingly 20 30 years after this point there are stories of kind of tugboat captains on the river yangtze taking tourists to one side and going do you want to buy a sheet of almost of stamps I, you know i bought the you know I've, these have been in my family for, for for decades and you know i'm flogging them off cheap now um so we don't know who the syndicate was and we don't know exactly how many stamps made it out there but we do know that among a certain class of people so sailors basically there was a huge market of these stamps at some point we also know that a large number of these stamps turned out to be fake uh, uh, because they're quite easy to make um, the stanley gibbons catalog was very disparaging about them when they were issued. They went, it's supposed to be a tiger, but we can't tell if it's a mountain or a dragon or a fish. We have got no idea. Um, they, they weren't very high quality stamps. Um, I went on to eBay to see what I'd have to pay uh, for a, a Taiwan stamp today, for a, for a Republic of Formosa stamp. Um, so bearing in mind, they retailed for £1.50, uh, $1.50, sorry, uh, in 1895. Um, today, if you want to buy one, they're a hundred dollars each, which sounds good. But if you put that money in a bank at four percent interest, that's what it would be worth now. Oh, that kind of sucks, really, doesn't it? Yeah. So, so I saw, I saw a hundred dollars, and I went, "Oh, wow, that's amazing!" And then I thought, "Hang on a minute, what? Well, how much was one pound fifty worth? Uh, you know, hundred and twenty years ago." So, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think a penny black is worth much more than a penny now. Um, and I think that possibly the, the rate of uh, increase in value of, of the stamps for the Republic of Formosa hasn't been quite as 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 um, precipitous as uh, the original investors were hoping. Jonathan, it has been an absolute pleasure. I think we could sit here talking about Chinese and Japanese and Taiwanese and probably we could even do Korea and Vietnam and all of it. We could do all of it. Let's just do all of it. <laughs> Might take a while. Uh, do you know what? I think it'd be so worth it. It would be good fun. But do remind our listeners the name of your book. It is Rebel Island, The Incredible Story of Taiwan. Perfect. It is out now. We're going to put it in our bookshop. Make sure you go grab yourselves a copy. I definitely need to learn a bit more about Taiwan. I didn't do enough at university. So I'm definitely grabbing myself a copy because, you know, I have other interests rather than the Second World War. And Jonathan, we need to get you back and sorted and do something on the major restoration because I'm dying for that. OK, let's table that one next. Fine with me. Perfect. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. 
Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.